friends, welcome back to the Oscillator Stove. This episode marks a transition from podcast to radio show, and to commemorate that, I've decided to change the opening theme from Cloudy with a Chance of Loneliness by Damien Sebe. Big ups to you, Damien. We had a good run. To the Atlantis Level 1 lobby music from Glover for Nintendo 64, which I have never played. Anyway, in this episode, I have Greg Henriquez, professor of graduate psychology at James Madison University and creator of the Unified Theory of Knowledge, to talk a little bit about a few elements of his very intricate, very extensive system that seeks to lead humanity towards what he calls a coherent, integrated pluralism. I love talking to Greg because I always learn so much, and I'm sure you will too today. Uh, Just remember to take notes. I'm going to shut up now and uh, let you hear the first song in this queue, which is a list of international songs that I crowdsourced for this episode. It's by a Japanese band called The Birthday, and according to the internet, the first line in the chorus translates to, somehow today, it feels like something like murder can't happen. Here's Nazaka Kyowa. Enjoy! Scout. Um, 
welcome to the podcast. Um, I'm really excited to have you on today to talk about um, unified theory of knowledge. Lovely um, to be here. Specifically, the problem of psychology, your definition of the psyche. Um, and I want to talk a little bit about the importance of mythos in um, grounding us in our reality as opposed to pulling us away from our reality because it mm. does come with that risk. It's not not a risk to be taken lightly right. as one has seen, you know, in, in past years um, with the so-called uh, post-truth mm. uh, world yeah, <laughs> that, yeah, we, that yeah. we've been dealing that with. That can be so, dangerous. <laughs> yeah. Can be and has been. So, mm -hmm. yeah. Um, my first question is, uh, what is you talk? What are the problems that you talk uh, solving? And how was the system born? Ah, well, okay. Um, I'll give you just a brief overview. I've told the story a couple of different times. Um, essentially, I think it's best to, to divide it up into two parts, part one and part two. Um, so part one starts with me as a clinician who is anchored to science um, who wants to then apply the best knowledge of science to psychotherapy. I want to engage in, in scientifically supported approaches. And then I get it, it, learn about the different schools of thought, which there are a lot of different schools of thought, a few primary schools like behaviorism, cognitivism, humanism, psychodynamic, and family systems. These are, um, and then you get into the therapy room, and I was taught that there was different uh, evidence that, oh, CBT, for example, does better, and that's the empirically supported, and, the, and you have to really find empirically support for the problems that people have, and then you apply that, and you get better and better outcomes, and sort of that, I think that's bullshit, basically. I don't think that's the way it works. Uh, I think the science basically is, hey, all of these different approaches sort of get similar outcomes. Um, really, there's the process between people, there's more general factors that are operating and they do offer key insights that you can build off of. Um, but they're not, as you get them more specific in the schools, they don't work well together. And then our cumulative knowledge breaks down. And I was, so this became the problem of psychotherapy. It's like, why are these different systems? What is the core of psychotherapy? And then I made the jump where I was like, well, shouldn't psychological therapy be based on the science of psychology in terms of what it tells us about the world? And this is an interesting thing whereby I then sort of got, well, what does psychology tell us about the world? And that's where I sort of rediscovered the problem of psychology, which is actually a very well-known thing, which is this weird thing that psychology does not have a clear ontological referent. That means what in the world is it about? Okay. Um, and uh, the reason is because they tried to apply this science, like modern psychology. I define modern psychology as coming under the umbrella of science. We've, of course, had all sorts of conversations about what is mind and what are feelings, how do people get bad, you know, troubled, how do they get better since philosophy and be before. People have always been struggling with this. But psychology, I define as being coming under the umbrella of science and then trying to apply science to whatever this field is of, of inquiry. And then everybody defines the field in different ways. And then you cannot define the field properly, okay, uh, in a scientific framework, I would argue. And indeed, the current structure of the field is only to define it based on the epistemology of science, meaning the ways and the methods by which science knows the world, rather than the ontology. And in fact, that's actually baked in now to the mainstream definition where most people define psychology and, and most 101 textbooks, science of behavior, which is available to the methods of science, and mental processes, which are then inferred by scientific uh, investigation to then, based on the researchers, program of research, then that is the mental process that they're investigating. Well, that's weird, really, relative to all the other natural sciences, okay? So, biology is the science of life, and then you apply the scientific methods to determine the patterns of living creatures, okay? Um, and chemistry is the science of atoms in the molecules and the material complexity of the world, and physics is the science of energy and matter. And, and then you notice that you have the referent, and then you apply the methods, <laughs> You don't say we're a science because we do methods and then you decide what the referent is based on research. Okay. So that's weird. Okay. Um, and that's something for us to be aware of. So then I got it, fell into the problem of psychology and then had two big insights. One initially was on sort of what really differentiates us persons from primates. And this is this thing called the justification hypothesis that evolves into justification systems theory. And it says that humans, in terms by virtue of the evolution of 
what I'll call capital C culture. These are the language-based beliefs and values that we have that you and I are communicating through right now, developed a whole nother kind of mental process on top of the animal mental process uh, that's operative in, well, the rest of the animal kingdom by and large, okay? And this, so these processes are processes of justification, what John Verveke calls propositional knowledge systems. I put them in a dynamic context that says actually when we're living, they're actually, they function as systems of justification in the sense that they're legitimizing is an ought. I generated a narrative about how that would have evolved and why then it created the structural functional organization. And that's justification systems theory. It's into them mapping human consciousness relative to say primate animal consciousness and the functions of human consciousness in relationship to the ways in which we are socialized as persons in our culture. Okay? And essentially we would get socialized as an animal to learn how to justify what you're doing in relationship to the world. Um, that's a, that's the snapshot. What that did was then it carved off the dimension of the human person from the mental ontology, animal mental ontology. And then ultimately I had an insight when I was stoned one day in 1997, I tell, you know, the tree of knowledge popped out of me, you know, in a sort of psychedelic thing. In fact, I have it, uh, the original one is on, it's framed in a wall in the other room there. Um, nice. And it's really interesting to just see uh, this sort of transcendent moment of insight. I, there's very little hesitation. There's nothing that gets scratched out. It just pops. And what it shows is a circle with one cone, two cone, three cones, four cones popping out of that circle. And what it does is it gives a vision logic for how the universe starts as an energy information singularity. And then matter evolves in terms of complexification, going from particles to atoms to molecules across scale. And then it says life evolves out of matter in a different dimension of complexity or complexification more technically. And then animal mind evolves out of life as a different dimension, which is like this mindedness in the world is a different thing that actually I can now see behaviorally. Um, and then ultimately then culture and the world of persons, cultured persons that justifies yet another dimension. And what that did essentially is the tree of knowledge is it created this big picture map of um, science, natural science in the psychology and the social science, where I could crisply define what basic psychology was about, which is about minded animal behavior. And then human psychology is the jump into the person behavior, which then connects to the social sciences like cultural anthropology. Okay. And what that did is it shifted and it gave me a picture for how to think about psychology, okay, as a specific thing in the world. It's mindedness, first at the animal kingdom, and then it's culturedness on top of the mindedness at the person level. And then and you got to split psychology and basic psychology and human psychology, and then place it in relationship to neuroscience and ethology. These are other biological sciences. And then place that into the evolution of what's now like cognitive science and then the social sciences. And now you can do that with this model and clarify the referent about what psychology is. It's actually the science of mental behavior, which is the kind of behavior we're interested in from science. And then that also ties together all the key insights. So um, this is my first set of insights. So justification into tree of knowledge gives rise to a theoretical framework for a theoretical unification of psychology. I wrote my first book, A New Unified Theory of Psychology in 2011, summarizing this. And then that set up what my original goal was, is to utilize a unified theory of psychology to scientifically ground and orient a unified approach. Okay. So that's sort of phase one. And then phase two, essentially, is this, I then backed up into the unified theory of knowledge um, and got sort of got flung into a whole nother world. Um, and this gives rise to this picture behind me, the garden and this weird thing called the coin. And what these ultimately do is they provide a new framework for understanding our knowledge in its entirety, a new synthetic philosophy that merges natural science with the psyche and wisdom um, and affords a coherentist approach to the world that we actually haven't had. That means that it's intelligible, it's comprehensive, it's breath, and it resolves the long-standing confusions. Like, hey, if science tells us that everything's like physically caused and I have my subjective experiences and that seems to cause stuff, how the shit, hell do we put this stuff together in a way that actually makes sense, well, we actually haven't been able to. And then you talk as a theory of knowledge aligns our subjective qualitative experience of being, it's gonna be represented by the coin, with the unfolding wave of energy information represented by science and the tree of knowledge. And you can get that synced up and get right relationships between 
the, these two very confusing vectors of understanding, and Utah provides us. So that gets us into the unified theory of knowledge, uh, which has then been the last five years that I've been really developing. Of course, that then expands us much more than inside of psychology. It really connects to all of the sciences and humanities and academic knowledge structure. Wonderful. And, and what's the most exciting about all that is it's really only scratching the surface. Um, because we haven't even gotten into the the Utah 20, which we won't get into today, but I will I will link in the show notes so that people can um, can watch it. It's an hour long lecture where you interview yourself. Um, <laughs> I was a special guest. <laughs> you were your own special guest, which if that's not meta modern uh, a meta modern religious, that's movie, right. No one uh, is right. I didn't even <laughs> rename myself, so I was myself right. interviewing myself rather than the Daniel Gortz Hansi thing and Neil and Hansi thing. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Um, but I will link to that so that oh, people you. can check out the 20 basic ideas of you talk and specifically, you know, how they get into those three problems that you briefly spoke right. about um, really quickly or slowly, whatever feels best to you. Uh, what is your definition of the psyche and why is it important to frame the psyche in this way? I like your definition of psyche. Right. So the psyche refers to the um, unique ideographic, particular, qualitative experience of being in the world, okay? So it is, it's, it's the hard problem of consciousness on the one hand, but more specific than that, the hard problem of consciousness as you embody it from your perspective. So it's behind Scout's eyes, and it's your perspectival knowing system that gives you your, what's called the epistemological portal into the world, at least the perspectival epistemological portal, okay? And that's a, there's a gap in the sense that you can never see anybody else's psyche directly. Okay, this is the, hey, how do I know that the red you see is the red I see? Now, the reason the psyche is really important is to understand, especially in you talk and especially in relationship to science, is because the psyche as an epistemic structure, meaning as a knowing kind of structure, is exactly what science tries to get rid of. Okay. So science, is, as a modern empirical natural science, developed a new kind of empiricism. The empiricism in science is not just the observation qualitatively of a particular subject that has a particular impression. In fact, that in and of itself is subjective, unreliable, specific, particular, and not scientific. What you need is you need observable data. And by observable data, they mean stuff that any trained observer could come along and see, okay? And in fact, as they got into this, they differentiated primary qualities, which would be the qualities that exist in the world, and secondary qualities, which is where we get the term qualia from, which are exi they exist only in our minds, supposedly, okay? And we're gonna factor out secondary quality and build a model of the behavior of primary qualities. Now, the, we lose these distinctions because they're kind of complicated, but that's actually where it starts and you get this whole model, basically where we're gonna engage in the behavioral analysis, the systematic behavioral analysis of generalized calls that give rise to the behavioral patterns that we see. That's the goal and the logic of science, okay? Now, what that means is to be scientific, you need to have this generalizable, repeatable, reliable, intersubjectively observable, data-driven, data-grounded phenomena that then creates a model for how the world works. Okay. That is exactly epistemologically opposite to the psyche. Okay. So the psyche sits as a unique qualitative embedded in the real. The psyche is not theoretical at all, but it doesn't necessarily correspond to anything in the world other than itself. You could be a brain in the vat as the whole, you know, like, <laughs> what the fuck could you be? Well, I, I don't know. And all it is is true on itself in some critical way, but there it is. The psyche sits. I wake up. And I see a computer in front of me. Now, what is that? Okay. Now, scientifically, we could say, well, the computer is a particular kind of technology, and we could all sort of get a general, but you can't get inside my experience. Okay. So the psyche is the unique inside-out vector. And I'm arguing that the language game of science is designed to factor it out. That is the whole purpose of what we mean by objective knowledge. My point of it is that actually by, by creating a language game that makes this, renders this opaque, it doesn't mean, it basically just means that science is going to be incomplete. 
Okay. Now, what people then try to do, well, then the psyche's epiphenomenal. I think that's a horrible mistake. What you actually need is you need a science that helps understand where this interior vector comes from and the role that it plays in relation. And you need a coherent understanding that places the subjective, unique, qualitative experience of being coherently in relationship to our scientific understanding of the world. And by the way, that's what couldn't be done. So it's called the enlightenment gap that I emphasize. And that's the idea is as science grabbed a hold of the world, it mapped matter in motion through this exterior way. It also gave rise to a physical reductionism that then was antithetical to human experience in many ways. And we couldn't put matter in relationship to mind and human knowing and justification relative to causes all in proper iterative relation in a coherent way. So we get mind versus matter. We get to what science says versus what we're doing subjectively and socially. And we get a fundamental fragmentation in our knowledge structure. Mm -hmm. And you talk seeks to mend that together. Beautiful. Thank you. Yeah. So I, part of what I find elegant about, I mean, you kind of just explained all of this, but what's elegant about this system to me uh, from the perspective I, I take, which is more of a poetic, mm -hmm. uh, mythological and symbolic uh, perspective, you know, right. Is being a Meta modern magic, baby. <laughs> right. Yes. Uh, that is, that is my MO, but, mm -hmm. um, but still understanding that, um, I absolutely love esotericism. I love magic. I like, I, I used to be like a new ager and, and mm -hmm. all of that stuff. And, um, but I also like the idea of there being a shared reality and a lot of, um, justification systems, which we'll talk, I guess, a little bit about that more in mm -hmm. a second. Um, cause I'd love for you to get more into that. Sure. Um, cause if you talk as a justification system, uh, versus like a justification system, like Christianity or, mm -hmm. uh, Wicca or something, which I would be more familiar with, sure. um, that kind of tries to, they tend to contest with one another in a certain way sure. that you talk doesn't necessarily, um, do that it more so tries to create coherence around these many different ways of 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 being and knowing and and understanding well what is this well you know and that's part of why there's i'm going to also link to your website so people can really really deep dive into all of these ideas because mm -hmm. when you start to see how they fit together which i'm still working on that but <laughs> when you start to see how they fit together it's really elegant um I see your definition of psyche and your um, understanding of of the subjective human knowing, sort of knowing. It's not a system. You called it a, a something. It's an epistemic system. Uh, okay. Uh, it's so that's a, yeah, that's an academic term. No, it's a knowing identity, <laughs> and I call it a, a will be. If I, if we go into the point at all, then it becomes the human identity function, which is basically the epistemic function of creating identities. Yeah. Oh, who am I? What is the world? How do I um, assimilate and accommodate? Um, know about it. Perfect. Um, but I I see your definition of the psyche as a sort of reinvitation or um, a reunion of the scientific and the um, and the the subjective through the esoteric. So Love your system it. is is obviously based in what you call men's knowledge. So modern empirical natural science. Um, mm -hmm. It doesn't necessarily reduce reality or experience to that, which is really skillful because it's, it's so easy to get into reductionism. It is. Most people do it. Mm -hmm. um, but it's esoteric in nature in structure mm -hmm. rather than in um, direct. It's not directly. It's not through direct lineage that it's esoteric. It's nope. uh, philosophically very esoteric because it, became it sees that. reality. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's, it did. It, it became that, um, which is really just so beautiful because most, most actually um, modern science um, started with the esoteric and then abandoned the esoteric. And you right. kind of went the opposite direction. I went the opposite. Exactly. 100% went the opposite. <laughs> so badass to me. Um, <laughs> like if that's not... If that's not amazing, I don't know. I don't, I've never experienced an amazing thing in my life. Um, mm, thank you. So yeah, it's, it, it's it is weird in that regard. <laughs> it's, it's, it's very, it's weird to be on this side of this as a scientist. And I maintain my identity as a scientist, but to fall mm -hmm. into um, the capacity to align my scientific logos, I'll use that term as sort of the scientific logic of the way the world works with my 
pathic experience of being, which really then the ground of which is my psyche, and then the mythos of being in the world, okay, which then will pull in all possible symbolic, um, projected, constructed, collective oughts about the way the world should be and how it might be and how we can project onto that and learn from that projection, the mythos of being. Now it's like there is an affordance here that dances, you know, creates this dance between these worlds, a coherent structure of dancing between the world um, that makes my soul sing. And I would, you know, 15 years ago, I'd be like, I'm going to go on a podcast called Metamodern Magic and talk about my soul singing. I'm like, well, what the fuck happened to me? You know, it's like, you know, it's like, it's like, no, actually something very beautiful, something very beautiful uh, happened. Yeah. I think it's so badass that, you know, you can, you, that you went in that direction because I feel like I'm, I'm going the opposite direction of like, hmm, yeah, this is all very beautiful, like the mythos, but something is missing when the mythos doesn't connect to these larger sort of um, systemic, meta-systemic maps that... Right. Um, so, right, that's the coherence problem. Okay, so right. coherence problem, what you need, what, what you're after in the ultimate coherence is a, is a full zoom back and then place the parts in a relationship, the music sings. But if you get into new age stuff, and you say, oh, well, actually, there's synchronicity between, and I'm not saying there's not, but I'm just saying, oh, of course, there's synchronicity. And of course, if we hang with these astrology things, and of course, if you do this stuff, all you need to do is, well, of course, how? You know, you know at the level of basic mediation of mechanism that, that the natural sciences sort of afford you. And if you think, well, I'm going to step outside of those and generate my own causal mechanisms, good luck. Okay, now it's incoherent at the level, well, then... Now we're in either dual worldism or now you're making shit up or, you know, it, it really uh, it can be really cool experientially. But if you're bringing a coherent logos to the world, that's a, that, then you're then you're missing that. So me, I'm committed to coherent logos and then I'm able to find esoteric worlds in relationship to coherent logos. And that that is what I'm excited about. Definitely. One of that is really exciting because um, from a, from a new age perspective, I learned about synchronicity, of course, through new age. And then from that, I mean, well, I first learned about it in high school when one of my teachers gave me this comic book that uh, kind of gives you Jung's ideas in like a very digestible way. And I was 16 and I was like, oh, this guy's a genius. Um, and then, you know, I, and <laughs> he's a genius. Um, and then I got into new age and their idea of synchronicity, it's very divorced from the... Jungian anal analysis kind of um, idea of synchronicity and uh, Jerome Bernstein develops the idea of synchronicity in this really elegant, beautiful way where it, he says basically exactly what you just said a little bit earlier of like science by nature is not, it's, it's just not science's job to understand synchronicity because synchronicity is everything science is not. It is unrepeatable. It is subjective. It is, um, not falsifiable. It is, um, it is a unique, well, you used the word quality earlier. And so that was cool. Um, I think those, those ideas are, are pretty, uh, linked to each other. Um, in the sense that when I see three, 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 it's not just three, three, three means so-and-so it's that like my attention, it, as I'm experiencing the world, my attention is drawn to something that evokes a response in me. Mm -hmm and no one else necessarily. Sometimes synchronicities can be shared. Uh, Bernstein talks about um, this one thing that happened where a man kind of knew he was going to die. He like sensed he was going to die and he had dr a dream about it. And then his wife also had a dream about it. And then they talked about how they both had a dream about it. And he was just like, if I die, you should remarry. And she was like, where is this coming from? Um, and then he did, he died. He died in the, um, in the 9-11 attacks. Um, wow. he was a firefighter. So, mm -hmm. um, yeah. And then he talks about another experience of how a son had, uh, this, this, this guy's son had, a, had surgery and he was like, I feel so nervous, like more nervous than usual. And the father took him into surgery and was like, mm, you'll be fine. You're just normal nervous. And he was like, no, I feel like I won't wake up if I go to sleep. Right. And it was really random and strange, right? And so the, the father goes home, has a dream that he's walking his son in the desert, um, and his son like gets taken away by some monster or something. He wakes up, runs to the hospital, and is like, just take him out, like, don't do the surgery today, please postpone it. 
The doctor comes to him and says, we actually ran some tests and your son's allergic to the anesthesia we would have given him. He would have died in his sleep. So you have experiences like that, that science is like, couldn't tell you, you know, just doesn't mean it's not a real experience. It's just the technology that we use, the, 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 uh, the ways that we can understand those types of experiences. If we try to understand them through a scientific lens, we get a mess. Um, but if we try to um, dismiss, well, if we try to like dismiss science and saying, oh, well, science can't handle this, therefore science is fake, um, you also get a mess, you That's know? Right. And what Utah does, and why I love the coin so much, and I want to talk to you a little bit about the coin and embodied rituals for placing the subjective human in relationship to this map. Because mm-hmm. um, you, you shared a little bit about certain things that you can do, certain things that I've done, I've shared with you as well. Mm-hmm. Um, how the coin, um, I think your phrase for this is marrying the coin to the tree in the garden under God, which is, exactly. it, it represents how to connect that kind mm-hmm. of, um, this mysterious kind of uh, unrepeatable phenomenon that, that uh, we can only, we only really truly know and understand the meaning behind um, mm-hmm. subjectively. Uh, and how that's in relationship to the larger, lovely, larger world that we yeah. can only understand through generalized theoretical maps, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, I mean, the, so the, you talk comes with not unlike Wilbur's frame, although it's good because it's a slightly different thing. It gives you three sort of pathways into understanding, knowing one is the tree. So then you have your scientific and says, here's the scientific men's knowledge epistemology. This is what it grants you, and this is the kind of uh, legitimacy that it affords in terms of says, this is what's legitimate, this is what's not. But it is not everything. By by definition, it's not everything. Um, You have your subjective qualitative experience of being. We can place these in some of the Greek rhetorical structures where one is the epitome of logos, the logical analysis of what's true, and pathos, which is then grounded on your subjective emotional perspectival experience of being. And then mythos, which is then the collective narrative about how we make sense out of our world. Okay, so if I were that guy who had and I had that dream, all right, and then I raced and saved my son, um, or God forbid, my son had died, all of that would have been fused together in me in a particular kind of way. In fact, I've had my own kind of weird quasi parapsychological experiences, um, and those things then are fused in my pathic subjective quality experience of being. Okay. My science side is agnostic about what the fuck all that is. I mean, it's just sort of like, and and that's really where science actually is not what's called foundationalist. It's it's called a correspondent theory of truth that strives for particular kinds of things. And that's sort of outside the bounds of our, you know, descriptive metaphysical ontological system. It's like, well, that's suggestive, if you take it at face value, of causal processes that are outside of our structure. Okay. So it's basically then is skeptical. It's, a, it's going to assume, especially if you take the ontological side of science. Now, you noted methodologically, you can't do much with that. Ontologically, you could say, well, how would you actually explain it? And the answer is not very well. Okay. So then you just sort of throw up your hands and say, well, it's just probably subject to bullshit from a science side. Okay. But subject to bullshit is actually the exact opposite of what it is when it's your subject. It's like, oh my God, this is my son. This is maybe some unbelievable force in the universe that saved the sun, okay? The mythos about what that might mean to ignore that, okay, and basically say that that is chance is essentially, I would, I would say that's very, very unwise to ignore that at the subjective pathos and mythos levels. In fact, to create meaning in relationship to that and honoring that in a particular way probably makes deep human sense at multiple levels, okay? So we can hold some of the experiences if you understand that there's a logos here, and especially not all things are scientific logos, but there's a brand of logos that's scientific. There's a pathic reality, okay? There's a mythos reality, and these realities can be in somewhat contradiction, okay? As long as you know what the rules are of the language games, you can understand those contradictions. And you talk affords us a way to be clear about the language games understand where they would be coherent and where they wouldn't be coherent and allows you to play like in a jazz band I mean, like, oh, okay, I can play my mythos, logos, and pathos. And they're different instruments, but they sing together in Utah.
scheduled programming absolutely i love that i like i like that that metaphor that's really good especially um that the music is jazz versus classical because jazz is all about emergence right mm-hmm. and right. so totally you're, you're bringing emergence participatory it, it, and, and that right. is what life is going to be it's going to be the edge there's always sort of the next transcendent emergent kind of structure I, the things that you generate create possibility there certainly is a ground of constraint here an emanation that constrains but there's actually also a generative process. So everything is always on a cusp of change in some regards. And, and to be open to that and to play with that and be participate in relationship to that and know that the future opens up various things that you can't know in advance, but you want to relate to as a, as a caring, um, investing value structure in the world. That, all of that is absolutely... We need a knowledge system that, that gives uh, intelligibility to that. Absolutely. Yeah. And I, so you mentioned astrology earlier uh, too, and I think this is a great example of um, a mythopoetic system that is dismissed because people try to appeal to causality when they try to like make sense of it. They try to like make it fit into, oh, well, of course this, the stars are directly X, Y, Z rather than like understanding that um, we kind of have complex meaning generation systems that aren't divorced from physical reality and its laws because we have an intuition, right? And so our intuition, I guess, would speak a language to us where it's like, we might not know what's actually going on between ourselves and the stars. And, you know, according to the science of it, it's actually pretty unlikely that it's like a direct, the sun was there, therefore I'm lazy, you know, because I'm a Taurus. So of course Mm -hmm. it's like, I just want to eat food and be lazy on the couch, right? I do, but it's not because I'm a Taurus. Those kinds of like strong justificatory <laughs> claims of causation are things that your science right. side wants to be like, yeah. uh, hold yeah. on. Yeah. And science has done a very good job of saying, hey, that's not how this works. But mm-hmm. um, it's not necessarily saying that it doesn't work, just that this is not how it works. And right. so um, I do have an intuition and my intuition, um, I would argue, exists to help me uh, in my daily life. Um, on an animal level, at the very least, uh, not die, right? Mm-hmm. And so I think of like the the I've been studying the Aum alphabet, which is kind of like a druidic divination system that was also like a secret language that the druids mm-hmm. would use to like mm-hmm. continue practicing their um, their religion mm-hmm. under Roman persecution. Uh, eventually, the Romans ended up banning it because they were incredibly powerful because they could speak this secret language that. Mm-hmm. Um, each symbol symbolizes uh, they, they correspond to a tree or a plant or some element of nature mm-hmm. that um, the Druids recognized a larger sort of pattern within of like, mm-hmm. oh, water behaves like this. And then that mm-hmm. symbolically represents something mm-hmm. more generalized um, uh, about the whole ecosystem. Right. And, and humans can behave like water, you know, humans. Uh, aren't water obviously Mm -hmm. but Mm -hmm. you know you could you could metaphorically kind of 
understand things in relationship to each other when you don't just reduce them to what they physically sure. are. Mm -hmm. And the Druids had, the, had a way of doing that mm -hmm. um, that led to a lot of power and led to a lot of like medieval uh, Ireland was like kind of thriving <laughs> um, before, before uh, Roman colonization, in part due to this kind of nature-based intuitive way of just connecting directly with um, the system that the ecosystem, which, you know, is intrinsic to our survival. Mm -hmm. um, so mm -hmm. when, you know, a son and uh, I think I was reading that um, a mother, like there's like a, like a, um, a DNA exchange between a mother and a child. So by the mm -hmm. time the child, you give birth to the child, you actually kind of on some level are the child. Mm. And then, and then, so there's this like weird people, I I'm skeptical about this, but it, it makes sense on like a emotional level of mm -hmm. why mothers are so attached to their children mm -hmm. um, or why like, you know, there, there are many different reasons why mother child attachment makes sense, you know, oxytocin sure. and whatnot. But um, when we bond to each other, we kind of dissolve the boundaries. Uh, and that's true of, of any living system in relationship to any other living system. It's, it, it's true of, I guess, uh, yeah, like our, our relationship to our planet, our, our, mm -hmm. our friends, whatnot. Yep. Um, when you, when you, when I frame it that way, the synchronicity stuff makes a lot more mm. sense in terms of, mm -hmm. oh yeah, I have implicit, um, for Vicky, he talks about intuition as a process of implicit learning. Like sure. you don't know it, but there's like an unconscious sort of, uh -huh. you're, you're absorbing the information and you're processing it and you're generating meaning. And then you have these insights or you have these visions mm -hmm. or you have mm -hmm. some kind of experience that seems, um, seems like spooky, right? Or mm -hmm. parapsychological mm -hmm. in nature, but it's actually just a symbolic representation of what you've synthesized about the information that you're constantly picking up. And so, mm -hmm. Um, having a dream about your son being being sick, you know, it's 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 hard to explain, but there could be some sort of physical process that we just don't understand that's happening there. Um, but we don't necessarily need to understand it in order for it to be real. Mm -hmm. Right. Well, the uh, the so um, the psyche, in, in the way I would frame the psyche, is within itself. The psyche is actually uh, is the proper way to conceive of. Psyche is through foundationalism as an epistemology, meaning that within itself, the psyche generates an ontic epistemic realization, okay, that's real for itself. Okay, and all that basically means is if you open your eyes, this gets basically into what Rene Descartes was saying, although it doesn't lead to exactly the same conclusion. But basically, when you open your eyes and you have the experience of a coffee cup, okay. Now, what's the reality of the coffee cup from a Logos correspondent perspective? Who knows? Because your brain could be in a vat. Okay? <laughs> but it is undeniable that there's a, that, that you're simply, what you have access to epistemically is an epistemic function that you are aware of a coffee cup. Okay? So in other words, that exists. That awareness function exists inside of itself with no correspondent. Okay? So just to, that, that is... That is in a moment in the universe right there. Um, that's essentially an undeniable, empirically observable to the subject moment that, is, that has ontic validity at the level of here you are undeniably experiencing a moment of awareness. Okay? Um, the individual is undeniably, and then you can extend that out of time through memory, and it gets kind of fuzzy the more you extend it because then you're like, well, what do you remember and what do you actually What's more deniable? As you expand it over time, it gets, there are fuzziness in the boundaries. It's not an absolute thing. But inside of itself, in the moment of itself, it's a pretty clear ontic epistemic realization. Okay, So that, that is a truth claim to be made that he experienced the world that way. Okay? And, that's, and, and experiencing the world that way is different than saying the world is that way, of course. Mm -hmm. That's the science deal. But that does. But by saying the world isn't that way doesn't mean that you didn't experience the world the other way. <laughs> mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And the issue fundamentally in our language systems is that actually this dialectic between these apparent contradictions can be placed in proper relation if we understand sort of what the epistemological criteria are for saying this. This experience is true within itself, okay? Versus the then the inferences about what it means that they've caused the experience. 
that's different. You can't do that from this truth, mm -hmm. but you can hold the truth. And we can know when people have these kinds of things, they are operating not on a logos, they are operating on an intuitive gripping function mm -hmm. that will have its own particular kind of intelligence, okay? And it will shape the way you feel about the world. And this is what John and I did when we talked about John in particular was the lead on them. Like what does psychedelic and other kinds of high, you know, high quality transformational psychological you know, conscious experiences have? Well, they have a certain type of feature to them. They change the person's grip on the world, the intuitive, perspectival, implicit operating system of what my role in the world is. Um, do they do it in relationship to logos? Actually, sometimes that's what happened to me, stoned on tree of knowledge, did in relationship to logos. Not always, though. Often it's, often it's the pathological, intuitive structure of one's place in the world and what one means about one, the world. Um, and if you get a transcendent experience, then all of a sudden the egoic justifier then is positioned differently. And people then shift the grip on the world. Um, is that a factual, logical, deductive animal? No, not at all. It's a perspectival, intuitive structure. But that is the way we are in the world. And we better have justification sense-making systems that don't obliterate the way we actually are in the world empirically. <laughs> Based on some empirical justification that the world doesn't work that way. It's like, no, actually, it does work this way in some senses. And you better have a knowledge system that affords the coherence between different kinds of knowledge systems that look like contradictory, but actually can be woven together. At least that's what Utah says. Like, don't just dismiss human subjectivity. It's placing human subjectivity in the correct cosmic coordinates and the correct justificatory language game. That is that's key. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so it's, it's, and it's elegant, you talk, I mean, it's a, <laughs> don't get a big head because I love mm -hmm. your system so much. But... <laughs> I'll try not to. Uh, <laughs> it is. It's hard. hard. I still have, you know. Uh, uh, I tried to dissipate that ego, but uh, <laughs> oh man. Oh, speaking of dissipating the ego, one thing that I um, frequently use as a weapon in spiritual spaces is your definition of the ego as a mental organ of just justification, and this can lead us into. Um, we still have about we have some time, and we can talk about justification systems theory we probably won't get to the behavioral investment stuff but that's okay sure we can just do another episode um if you'd like <laughs> yes, I'd, I'd welcome that we'll I, talk you about know all I love 20 ideas yeah. <laughs> right well <laughs> we'll do a whole series maybe we'll do a, you talk series yeah yeah that'd be cool actually mm -hmm. um but yeah i'd love i'd love to hear um mm -hmm. from you about the ego as a mental organ of justification that does not require um uh, destruction and is in fact quite useful and necessary for preserving mental health um, and then how that relates into justification systems and you know you talk being a particular type of justification system that solves particular types of problems yeah. um, within a wider sort of net of justification systems um, you know choose, choose your fighter okay all right um <laughs> Yeah, so so let's let's talk a little bit about what I mean by that. So the first thing uh, that I want folks to do is just take. We'll stay with your psyche, and and we're going to make just the observation that language systems operate within themselves. Okay, a language system is something like I can't speak Chinese. Okay, um, the nervous system has to get inside of itself to do computation within it. This is the nature of a language system. Does it speak its own self? It translates the stuff. Okay. So now let's, if we pay attention to your psyche, you'll notice, oh, at the very least, I have my field of perceptual awareness, what we've been referring to as the center of the psyche. And then I can overlay on top of that a different kind of information system, which we call language, but be clear about it. It's actually a symbolic syntactical structure, okay, where you put words that have reference in, a, in an order that has a grammar, and then that creates propositional language, meaning making structures. Okay. Now, what's really important about that is the nature of this information processing system, okay, can describe the perspectival system, all right, but they're two total, they're different kinds of systems, they interface with each other, okay, and what's really interesting about them is this one, the propositional, goes right through the skin without losing its form, okay, so you can say things privately to yourself that have the exact same propositional network, in structure, when you say it publicly, that's totally different than the epicenter of the psyche. We were just saying you can't get the experience of redness to you. 
You'll never see that directly. You can't get it through the skin. So look at that difference. Okay, so now, well, where does this come from? Well, we're talking apes, okay? And so the justification idea, there's the hypothesis that said, well, first we were symbolic and we were intersubjectively grooving, okay? And hunting mammoths, okay? And building fires and gathering berries and doing our hunter-gatherer structure. That's because of what Michael Tomasello ordered is that we have a shared intersubjective we space that emerges prior to language. Then we start symbolically tagging shit. And then we symbolically syntactically starts talking in sentences. Okay? Well, the argument from just is that when you start doing that, you make propositional claims okay, about the world. Right? And that propositional claim now actually opens up a whole new possibility space okay, that ultimately is going to become cumulative culture, or at least cumulative human culture with a capital C, these justifications. Because it's like, oh my God, this truth claim can be true and this. And then it's like, well, how do we know them? Well, you ask questions about Okay, so you make a propositional claim, and actually that's a positive space claim. It's like, hey, this is true, antelope, the antelope are over there. And then all of a sudden, once you make that claim propositionally, now you can question that. No, they're not. No, those are llama. They're a rat. And so you can question the truth claim. You can also note that when I say the antelope over there, I'm in inviting you at the influence and investment level to pay attention to this. Okay, so it's actually a value claim whenever you're actually enacting propositions because you're paying attention to them. When impl an implication is that you could pay attention to other shit, like it's going to rain or let's build a drum. Anything else could be attended to. Okay, So now propositions become these sort of truth claims that can be questioned. Then what happens is, well, how do we network propositions together to explain the world? Okay, That's one collective intelligence problem. Like how do we accurately explain the world and how do we explain it in a way that's relevant to our goals? We have to do that collectively. And then you as a person need to do that in relationship to the world and the collective. Okay? And so here where we get to the fundamental, why is the ego, the mental organ of justification? Well, the answer is because other people can ask you why you did what you did. Okay? And the answers that you give them play a huge role in how you're treated. Okay? So the example I like to give here is imagine you're at a party okay, with somebody you're kind of a rival with. They have a nice white rug, big party. They're pouring red glasses of wine. And you spill it. And everyone looks at you and goes, oh, and you say, oh, my God, I'm so sorry. Let me help clean up. Or I've actually had a lot of subconscious hostility towards you. And I resent the shit that you have. And I'm glad I spilled my fucking red eye because I did it intentionally. Mm -hmm. Okay. So when you spill your glass, and like all the things we're talking about, there are a lot of possible explanations for how the world unfolds. Okay. What do you take accountable for as your intention and what you're responsible for versus how you explain not is an unbelievably complicated problem because it's ambiguous as hell about what's actually causing the world and whether or not you take responsibility for it is ambiguous as hell in relationship depending on how other people are going to see you. Okay? So the task at a socialization level is to build an internal self-reporting concept that gives accounts and is held accountable, reason giving, that legitimizes yourself on the social stage. And then you build an internal working model, okay, that manages what's called your persona. That's the actual front-facing mask that you try to hold in your public self-conscious, which is trying to regulate the identity on the social stage. Okay, so your persona's out here, your ego is in here, and it's sitting atop this primate qualitative experience of being in the world. That's the experiential self, okay? And this gives rise ultimately to human consciousness on four different levels, okay, lower domains. So one is the witness function that your sensory perception is bringing in. Then your mammal into primate is like, hey, that's relevant to me because it's like about status, it's about love, it's about food, about relevant. So it grabs what it perceptually sees relative to your emotional experience and drive experiences. Pay attention to that shit. All, by the way, intuitively, okay, and gives your body a feel of I want to go fuck that, I want to go eat that, I want to run away from that. Okay. And then you have your egoic narrators like, what is okay that sits, as Freud said, like a horse rider on top of a horse that's determining what's justified in a social scenario that's legitimizing proper civilized behavior relative to fucking animals. Okay. So now you have this whole idea of like, oh shit, I've got all these animalistic impulses. I've got these socially unacceptable impulses, but I have to tell a story about why I'm doing what I'm doing at a persona level. That legitimizes me. So you get a mental organ of justification that's going to repress the selfishness 
the, the incompetence and hide it from a persona to create what I call the Freudian filter, which is between your primate and your person, private ego, and then the persona, which you often then internalize as a superego that's trying to regulate what's acceptable. All right? And this all emerges from the evolution propositions. And so the justification hypothesis takes the, an evolutionary idea okay, about what's inevitably would have been a tipping point, created a new adaptive problem, and says evolution would have built your ego and persona relation on top of your primate as a mental organ of justification. That would be very attentive to what other people could see and regulate that and build a narrative. And there would be filtering between that. And then you go up to Freud's fundamental observation about the relationship between the superego, the societal expectations, the ego, and the id, the underneath I. And you say, oh, Freud's fundamental observations now can be placed on an ontological trajectory of evolution of our primate histories that tipped us into symbolic knowledge. And now you have a map of human consciousness that gives a witness function, it gives a desiring animalistic primate function, a justifying ego and a persona that then explains the cumulative culture of humans and how the socialization process is that we learn to internalize what's justifiable, create accounts for what's justifiable, and create a person-primate dialectic that Freud saw but couldn't explain, but now we can. Awesome. And it feels too that this is kind of where where like culture emerges because you have exactly. all of these different so, subjective systems. So this is another thing that Utah does. If you get into culture, they don't know how to define the word culture precisely because we don't know how to define the word mental processes. Okay. So they used to define culture as the shared set of beliefs and practices and an emerging technology altogether. Okay. But then they're like, well, wait a minute, do only humans have culture? Well, other animals have shared learned behavioral practices. So then you get, well, share just human, blah, blah, blah. Tree of knowledge comes along and says there's shared behavioral repertoires that other animals will develop. Okay. Monkeys can learn to wash potatoes. Chimpanzees can be documented like 50 different kinds of behavioral repertoires in different chimpanzee cultures that are unique and learned and passed down. But these are behavioral investment patterns. Okay. They're behavioral investment patterns. What humans have is justificatory capital C culture, which are the networks of propositions that are cumulative in a radically different way. I mean, they build belief value systems, get defined against one another in a ball, and get handed down through language in a way that affords much more informational transfer. Right? And so you can, you can tell a fucking story. And if I go out and tell, come back and tell you a story about what happened on the hunt, that's so much better than a, what a, you know, bees give good woggle, but it, it's a fundamentally different kind of language system. And it creates cumulative culture where they're in the networks of justification systems that evolve in increasing complexity, potentially. I mean, they can collapse and they can do other things. Um, but yeah, there's an evolving cumulative nature. So it's capital C culture, person, plane of existence, on also little c culture, shared behavioral repertoires, which are then embedded in a biophysical ecology. And the other thing we humans do is build complex tools. Other animals can build tools, but they're pretty simple. Humans can create an evolution of technology. And the evolution of technology, the evolution of capital C culture, and these behavioral repertoires, all of this combined to create the cumulative culture that sp splits us off and causes us mm -hmm. to dominate the planet in a way that's totally radical. Mm -hmm. And this um, makes me think of uh, <clears throat> Morton's concept of hyper-objects a little bit, because I don't think, I think at this point, it really just kind of gets away from us. It's so abstract. And I love the concept, the Greek concept of an egregore, um, which is essentially like, they have this idea that um, you can, and egregore is different from the even older uh, idea, which is like a spirit, you know, mm -hmm. a spirit being perhaps like a personified, embodied, metaphorical representation of some kind of, e shall I say, like, set of behaviors. Yeah, archetypal pattern, maybe. Mm -hmm. Yeah, perhaps. Um, but an egregore is more like a that at the level of culture. So mm -hmm. it's like... Um, Christianity has a particular character to it, right. you know, and it's not just because like the figure of Jesus himself, right. it's more like the embodiment of it on a collective cultural sort of yeah. level um, can only be understood in an abstract archetypal way because it's so complex. Totally. Um, well, yeah. So we want to, we want to understand. So here's, okay. So we're on the cusp of something unbelievably weird here. Or that's about, that's, that's waving through us. So we're going to be, we're going to be washed over with hyper objects. Okay. And the reason is basically this. So 
we elevate off of animals and, oh, is that a modernist? Can we look down on animals? I just mean that in terms of complexification. We can decide that we're, I often call us verbals, by the way, which is like rhymes with gerbils and it's designed to humiliate us a little bit and, and humble us, <laughs> a little fucking verbal, you Thank know, we're just running around, justify <laughs> and chewing up the fucking planet. I mean, it, it's this image of us as chewing up. So yes, I, I would argue that at an objective level, you can say humans are at a hot nested hierarchy of complexification. They layered on this justificatory structure and then they layered on cumulative technology and look at what we did with the planet, whether it's good or bad. That's a totally another set of arguments. Um, anyway, the point of it is that descriptively, that's what happened. But now and, and then that grew as the justification systems grew more complicated and we built psychotechnologies that first started to interface with them. Writing is a good example of a psychotechnology that started to interface our technologies with our language systems. Okay, and Then the printing press generalized that. Well, now we've done that a whole nother order with the way we've built material culture that can now compute. Okay, it's got its own information processing system that we're building, electronic information processing that we've networked throughout the world. So now the, the evolution of our justification systems are now interfacing informationally with our artificial intelligence system. And then we're going to fuse into a symbiotic, hopefully healthy symbiotic intelligence between our justificatory and investment systems and the iterative feedback that now another computational system that's layered on top. And Tree of Knowledge tells you new computational systems, new information processing communication systems are at the root of a fundamental shift in complex adaptive behavior. So they tell you, be Fasten your seatbelt at the 21st century because this interface is going to be unbelievably intense and it's going to open up hyper objects that we have no idea how to relate to. Um, and the scariness is, is that we're flying into this as we are chewing up the planet with a chaotic fragmented pluralism and a bunch of fucking people going insane. I mean, collectively. And then you're going to try to navigate this through these emerging objects. And you're going to basically they talk about the two attractors of, well, that's going to collapse us. We're going to create totalitarian somehow we're going to have to create a third attractor that's like, huh, how do we get the stack right? And Utah tries to come along and say, well, there's a lot of knowledge systems that we're missing that we can afford to orient us to get the stack right and get a third attractor that does good things in the world. I think that's a really um, great place to leave off because it um, it's going to leave the audience w just burning with, with questions and, and wanting more. And I would love to have you on the show again. I'd so. be happy to come back. I'm not, you know, I'm <laughs> yeah. Not, I'm not, yeah. Yeah. I'm going to strategically end things here. Thank you so much for. Hey, it's been great. Come you know. on. Yeah. And it's always really, really exciting and, and eye opening to talk to you. It just, it really, I'm at the limit of my, like, what I can comprehend, um, which, which I love. So thank you again so much. I'm going to stop rambling. Um, and you're you're a soul nourishing um, creature, uh, Scout. You nourish my soul. Thank you so much for listening to the Oscillator Stone radio show featuring Greg Henriquez, creator of the Unified Theory of Knowledge. Check out Greg's website and podcast in the show notes and stay tuned for next month's episode, which will feature Greg Dunbar, no relation, on metamodern methods in the arts. Our final song for the evening is Seiya by Umu Sangare, also referred to as the songbird of Wasolu. Probably also said that wrong. She's from Mali. Be well and take care, and I will catch you next time. Bye!
Nale, bayro, 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 nale. Johnny Benny, can you pack a tea? 